You are listening to Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs. This is sort of a complimentary talk to the last very interesting one, and I'm going to talk about dermatologic sequelae of flooding, just a little bit on cold, since you already heard a lot about cold. No conflicts of interest. If you know or recognize this gentleman, that's Steve Tiering. He's a dermatologist par extraordinaire with an interest in viral diseases. That's his home he's standing in, in about, you know, up to the knees water after our last flood in Houston. So it can happen to anyone. So weather-related events are increasing, and it turns out most of these are water-related. Most of the disasters, hurricanes, tropical storms, tsunamis all around the globe, affecting billions of people, hundreds of thousands of people being killed. And these are the expected potential health sequelae of flooding, lots of them. And those are the ones that relate to us, relate to the skin. There's a fair number of them. I'll tiptoe through a few of them, and hopefully there'll be one or two things uh, that you might pick up. By show of hands, it's kind of hard to see with these bright spotlights beating in my face, but by show of hands, how many of you live in Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida, Georgia, or South Carolina? Y'all should move there. It's really lovely. Um, that's where some of the major problems happen because that's where the hurricanes and tropical storms hit. Although, as we've seen in recent years, sometimes those storms move up, particularly the Atlantic coast, and so nobody's really free of this. Or you might be on vacation or visiting friends and relatives. So, hurricanes. Lovely picture of Hurricane Harvey hitting the Texas coast. So last year, we had Harvey that devastated Texas. And of course, after they're done with the coast, they usually swing up sometimes through the center of the United States, often heading towards the East Coast, and drop tons of rain there too, which can cause flooding. Hurricane Irma, of course, devastated Florida, and Hurricane Maria wiped out Puerto Rico. So it was really a banner year for bad floods. And keep in mind, that's what you see. This is all, this is Houston from Hurricane Harvey. The whole city was underwater. And people are trying to get to home, get to high ground, get to a friend's place to hang out, trying to get help, trying to get to a hospital, trying to get medicine, trying to get food, and they're walking through all this water. So that's where the problem happens. So just in brief, to let you know what we went through in, in Texas, particularly the Houston area, this is a one-in-a-thousand-year flood event. 51 inches of rain, continuous, didn't stop for two and a half days. Unbelievable. Houston, the city, actually sank an inch from the weight of the water. Over 200,000 homes were lost. Three to 500,000 cars were lost. 
$180 billion in damages. And it's interesting that if you add up the cost for the damages of Hurricane Irma in Florida and Hurricane Harvey in Texas, it actually affected the gross domestic product of the entire United States, decreased it by a percent plus. So skin diseases are common. We have three really big events, and then there's a few others I'll mention from time to time. There was a big tsunami in Asia, flooding in Thailand, and of course last year's hurricanes and flooding in Texas and north of Texas, as well as Florida and Puerto Rico. So these are very common events. One thing you can expect is that people who've been wandering through floodwaters, high waters, and this doesn't have to be a catastrophic flood like Harvey was, just a local flash flooding, they may have acute flares of their chronic problems, particularly eczema. So when you see VAMC, that's VA Medical Center, I'm the chief there, and we were told to report the day after Harvey, okay, how? You couldn't go anywhere. And if you could go somewhere, there were cars all over the place, down tree limbs. It was a minefield, but some of us managed to struggle in in a day or two. So this is a gentleman who had lifelong atopic dermatitis, actually doing quite well. But as soon as he was exposed to the floodwaters, which can contain chemicals, as I'll talk about in just a second, or just the water alone, the sequence of moisture, dry, moisture, dry, moisture, dry, flared his chronic eczema. Then think about this. You're wandering through the water. What's on the water? What's in the water? What's under the water that you can't see? And if you're carrying your possessions or you're carrying a child, or even if you're not, you can bump into all sorts of interesting things. So there are objects. You don't know what's there. And in really heavy flooding, things have washed into the water. Could be tools, could be sharp objects, who knows? Chemicals often get into the water. Pesticides, for example, or alkali, or acids. You could have a canister of plant food that gets knocked down during the rain, and then all the material gets washed into the floodwaters. Of course, there are insects. They're animals. We'll talk about animals in a second. But remember, animals don't know how to react. This is very stressful, even those that can swim well. And so they may, instead of being a docile house pet, turn into a significant threat. There are bacteria and there are fungi in that water, under that water. And so your, your threat from high water and flooding is really fairly substantial. And the first thing, all those things, bacteria and fungi and objects, sharp and blunt, chemicals, electrical lines, insects are going to hit, is your skin. So that's why skin events are so common following flooding. Let's do an ARS question. In water disasters, what percent of patients problems, complaints, are due to trauma. 15%, 25%, 50%, 73%, or 
Okay, survey really nicely split, but it's right in the middle. 50%, roughly 50% of the patient's complaints, problems, concerns are due to trauma. So it's usually the initial morbidity or even mortality, particularly in major water-related disasters. Think about a tsunami with that huge wall of water that pushes people into everything, to buildings, trees, poles, other objects. But even in a flood, which doesn't carry the force of a tsunami, you're walking, you can't see what's underneath there. What's underneath there might not be what's supposed to be there, like a street or a sidewalk. And so you can hit yourself, you can scrape yourself, you can be lassoed, you can be abraded, etc. So in this 2017 recent meta-analysis, upwards of 50% presentations for medical care are due to trauma. It's more common when there's force, like a tsunami, but even by a flood because of hidden objects. So these are all from our most recent flood. And you see this person was walking in the floodwaters. You can't see what's underneath the water. Hit something, tripped, and then fell onto what was probably concrete, so abraded. This person was walking, didn't see anything. There's water feel solid underneath, but there was a large object, stick-sharp object sticking out and developed a laceration of the leg. This person walked right into some hard object, developed a hematoma. Of course, should be x-rayed to make sure that the patella is intact. And this person suffered a puncture wound from something, God only knows what, that's under the water. So in a water disaster, particularly when there's flooding, and especially if that's also combined with the force of water rushing in, beware of trauma. You might be asked, as was the case in Houston, they asked for volunteers to come triage, and you might be put somewhere where they need someone to triage, whether it's patients complaining of abdominal pain, patients coughing, patients with chest pain. But because you're in Durham, you might very well be asked to triage skin disorders, and that includes trauma. So you need to brush up a little bit on your elementary trauma care. Bacterial pathogens are exceedingly common. And of course, if you already have trauma, you have a portal for entry. The majority of the isolates in the bacterial infections that accompany water disasters are normal environmental or skin flora, and the usual pathogens are Staph aureus and Streph pyogenes, the things that cause cellulitis. So here's another patient who was wading through floodwaters, felt burning and stinging, but you know was trying to help neighbors and then ultimately developed blisters, those blisters burst and left a collarette of scale. I've tried to point that out with the little arrows. When you see that little collarette, you can work backwards and you can infer that there was a blister there and this is the remnant of the base of the blister. And this was MRSA and this is bullus impetigo, aided and abetted by hyperhidrosis of the skin which allows the bacteria a nice portal of entry, cholerets of scale. But then he also has intact pustules, which is a clue 
but this is probably related to staph. Other common conditions, irritant contact dermatitis. You don't know what's gotten into the water. And in our area, in, in Houston, of course, we have petrochemical plants. They flooded just like everything else. So you can have petroleum distillates and breakdown products of oil irritants in the water, along with household objects, etc., household chemicals, etc. Usually there's redness, burning, and stinging. It's really important when you have someone with some ill-defined abnormality on the skin following flood water to ask them, give me one word. That's how I pose it. How would you describe this? Does it itch, burn, sting, or hurt? Because those words, generally uniform among human beings, will help tell you what's going on. So if it's a contact dermatitis, if it's an irritant dermatitis from some sort of chemical, they usually will say it burns and stings. If there's some oozing and crusting, and they say it itches more than it burns and stings, it's usually a reactivation of some eczematous dermatitis. And if itches it, and it's in the right places, it can be fungus, particularly on the foot. And remember, if you're walking through water of differing heights, it doesn't matter if it's a flood water, your feet are always going to be in it. So dermatophytosis, even if someone had a very mild case of tinnipedis or onychomycosis, it can go wild. And it's also macerated, so it doesn't look exactly the way it should. So look at that patient. Itching was the predominant symptom. I said itch, burn, sting, hurt, itched. Walking through flood hours for hours, and then one week later, every interdigital space looked like that. It's T. rubrum. You can find it. It's abundant. You can scrape and look on a KOH, send it off for culture. But it doesn't look dry and scaly because it's been hydrated by the water. So it looks a little funny. But if you see this macerated look in the toe webs after someone's been in water, and ask them, did you have athlete's foot before this flood? This is probably, and they usually say yes, but it was pretty mild and I didn't bother with it. This is usually an exacerbation of their dermatified infection. Now compare that with this patient. We're itching, burning, and stinging, all about the same, but also it hurt. This guy's hyperhydrated. Look at the bottom of his foot. All that skin that's white is going to peel off. And in some places, the base of his toes and all the way to the end of his toes, on some of them, it's already peeled off and it's equally infected with dermatophytes as well as secondary bacterial invaders. So he needs to be treated for both. How do you know you have to culture KOH? But you always should presume, because someone who's this bad, you should presume it's probably both, and you're going to treat them for both. Deep fungi are really uncommon. But it's interesting that when the deep fungi accompany some natural disaster, particularly a flood, the manifestations occur years to even decades later. Because what happens is they've undergone a small traumatic implantation with a fungus from the environment, whether it's a plant, which is most common, 
or a wood splinter, and then they develop the lesion which is very indolent. The most common is actually, the most common cause is actually Fonseca pedroseae, which causes chromomycosis. So this gentleman I've depicted, that horseshoe shape is very common for chromomycosis or chromoblastomycosis is the old name for it. He was part of a cleanup crew during our tropical storm Allison eight years before presentation. And he said he developed a little scaly bump, didn't bother him very much, so he didn't do anything about it. And over the course of eight years, it developed into this large, exophytic, scaly but asymptomatic lesion of chromomycosis due to Fonseca pedrosoi. He was in the cleanup crew, so he was ripping and taking away, hauling off things like plants, like wood, like sheetrock, every kind of debris possible, and was undoubtedly subject to some traumatic implantation. This has been reported in other flooding events, like aid workers after the fact in Thailand, who developed this sort of same lesion, and occasionally reports of blastomycosis and mucormycosis. But most of the fungal, other than dermatophytes, other than exacerbated tinea pedis, usually interdigital. Other than that, the other fungus that can accompany flooding disasters is Fonseca pedrosoi, but you won't see it until years later, fully developed. There are some uncommon infections that can accompany. So when we have a hurricane, some of our channels that lead out to the Gulf Coast, two in Louisiana, two in Gulf part of Mississippi, Alabama, all throughout Florida, South Carolina, Georgia, seawater can actually be, as the winds come in from the hurricane, it can push seawater inland. And so some of the flooding, particularly co close to the coast, is actually seawater. It's not the fresh water from the rain, it's seawater. And that, of course, can contain Vibrio vulnificus, a relative of Vibrio cholera, which causes cholera, GI disease. Vibrio vulnificus infections can occur either by direct inoculation or inoculation through a traumatic injury, or, so salt water in a wound, or by eating undercooked seafood or shellfish. Obviously, in a water disaster, it's going to be from direct implantation, direct inoculation, either into a wound or through some small fissure that's already there. Unfortunately, Vibrio vulnificus infection, while it looks like it's localized to start with, has a very high mortality rate, particularly those who have underlying problems, especially liver disease or who are immunosuppressed or immunocompromised. How does it start? With petechiae and purpura that lead to hemorrhagic bullae, which you can see on the top picture there. Ultimately, the bullae resolve, but it leaves hard, dead, black skin, the eschar. And under that eschar, everything underneath is usually gone. It's dead tissue. And that can go all the way down to bone. And then the organism itself, or related organisms, or other organisms can come in through that slough tissue and cause septicemia and death. So this is Vibrio vulnificus from seawater that gets pushed into urban areas, particularly when there's rain and wind, 
or a hurricane. This is during Hurricane Katrina a few years earlier, where there was a cluster of infections and a whole bunch of deaths from Vibrio vulnificus. And again, notice hemorrhagic blisters. Treatment for this is either doxy or minocycline, along with usually ceftriaxone intramuscularly, 250 milligrams. So it's both. It's dual therapy because this is a deadly, deadly bacteria. Where is Vibrio the most common? All the green dots, so a lot of it in Asia, but in the United States, it's right along the Gulf Coast. There are also smaller numbers along the Atlantic coast, Florida, Georgia, South Carolina. This is predominant in the Gulf Coast. Mycobacterium marinum can also be found in salt water. Not a common thing. Normally we think of M. marinum as the fish tank granuloma. So from a little local fish tank with a, and a portal of entry. But it also can survive in salt water, slow growing mycobacterium. And this can lead to sort of indolent papules or nodules. And this was seen following flooding in Katrina, the Asian tsunami, other atypical mycobacterium. And the treatment for this is heat as an adjunct to either minocycline 200 a day or clarithromycin a gram or two a day. In fresh water, a rare infection is Aeromonas hydrophilia. This is a gram-negative rod, like Vibrio, but it's in fresh water. So normally it's things like fish tanks, pools, playing football in the mud. Uh, it doesn't sound very exciting to me. Ingestion, or it can be inoculation into trauma. So during flooding events with fresh water, normally one sees this after there's some minor trauma, somebody wading in fresh water. And it causes a bullous cellulitis. So there's red, pain, swelling, with some blisters on top of it that aren't necessarily hemorrhagic. This was actually seen a fair amount in Katrina when New Orleans literally had a storm surge and Lake Pontchartrain went over its banks and into the city. And Lake Pontchartrain is a mixture of both salt and fresh water. But Aeromonas hydrophilia lives mostly in fresh water. But there were this infection, this cause of cellulitis, frequently following that episode of water disaster in people who had minor trauma and then walked through the floodwaters. Predisposing, just like with Vibrio, liver disease is a real major predisposition. This ultimately causes a deep necrotizing disease. You can see these are two different cases, but look at the bottom one, literally eating through the skin all the way down to tendon level. Diabetes, renal failure, alcoholism also will predispose, but liver disease is really a key factor in developing both Vibrio and Aeromonas infections. This is treated with ceftriaxone or quinolones or probably optimally both. So I am ceftriaxone in conjunction with an oral quinolone. Other bacteria, erysipeloid, not a big one for disasters. That's usually localized from handling fish, either fish market or, or fishermen, fisherwomen, fisher people. But this is the one I'd like to, 
to concentrate on because it's a real potential killer, and that's leptospirosis. It's a spirochete. And there are 21 species, so that's why I haven't included a species name. Worldwide, there's a million cases and 60,000 deaths a year. This carries a very high mortality rate, relatively speaking, to other bacterial infections. It's exposure to water contaminated with animal urine, particularly rodents, like rats and mice. And you can be exposed either by inadvertent swallowing contaminated water or, like Aeromonas, like Vibrio, small cuts, small abrasions exposed to water that's contaminated with this bacteria. Normally, our water supply, your backyard pool, none of the places we encounter water will have rat or mouse urine in them. But in a flood, of course, the rats and mice are nervous. They pee, goes in the water, and you contact it at the wrong time. This is very commonly seen in floods in Southeast Asia, but certainly has been seen in the United States too. It's a nonspecific presentation, except you know somebody's sick. They've been in floodwaters and they're sick. Fever, chills, headache, myalgia, sometimes cough, and very, very frequently conjunctivitis. They also have a nonspecific maculopapular eruption, which it by itself goes away. So it isn't the skin disease kills them, it's a sign of leptospirosis, and leptospirosis can go on, this is how people die, to have multi-organ failure, hepatorenal failure, pulmonary hemorrhage, meningoencephalitis, all potentially leading to death. These are some cases of leptospirosis in the United States. Nonspecific eruption following exposure to flood water, conjunctivitis following exposure to flood water. The reason I emphasize this is because you can prevent it very easily. And this is a beautiful article on the use of chemophroprolaxis after flooding to reduce leptospirosis. They reviewed all the literature that's ever been written, and it really appears to be quite effective. Even a single dose of doxycycline, single dose, 200 milligrams, or one 200 milligram dose for two to four weeks, but even a single dose given as pre-exposure, prophylaxis significantly reduces the risk from leptospirosis. Post-exposure, all right, they've already been in the water, really doesn't do quite as well. It's statistically not significant. And of course, now they're really sick and they need major league treatment, including hospitalization. So the message here, if a flood is coming, take 200 milligrams of doxycycline, period, pre-exposure prophylaxis. By the way, this is the road to my office following Harvey. You can see on that one where the overpass is larger, there's a car there. The, the water was up to about three quarters the height of a car. And that's the road where you see the tree-lined street that I drive every single day. Okay, how about this one? Let's try. A bacterium that's associated with mud. Chromobacterium violation, Mycobacterium fortuitum, Iconella corrodens, you already know what that is. You know that's not the right answer, right? That's this, 
genitalia, remember those pictures? Peptostreptococcus mycobacterium avium complex. What do you think? Bacterium associated with mud. Okay, 18% of you got it right. It's chromobacterium violation. So after the flood, depending on the composition of the earth in that area, you might see a lot of silt or sludge. Look at the stuff that all accumulated around different parts of the city as the water resolved. So the water goes down and you're left with mud. And people are shoveling the mud, they're moving the mud, they're moving it out of the way, they're trying to clean up areas, and this bacteria can be in mud. And if they have a minor abrasion, a minor laceration, some sort of traumatic point of implantation, touching mud is not a good idea because you have chromobacterium violation. It's called violation because that's what it looks on blood agar. You can see it actually looks violet, looks purple. It's seen mostly in the warmer areas of the United States and other warm areas of the world. So the southern United States, it leads to an inflamed wound. It gets in the bloodstream and fatality rate is as high as 60%. Don't touch mud. Don't let the kids play in the mud because this is a really bad actor. Best treatment is combination of quinolone and imipenem. It's a bad bug, high mortality rate, no mud. Then some other environmental situational dermatoses. Just being in water. Remember World War I, people were in the trenches. They dug trenches. Then they got out of the trenches and rushed the other people. And then the other people rushed them. In between, they're in the moist trenches. That's how the name trench foot came to be. And it's following prolonged exposure to water and cold, but not freezing cold, not hot, just a little chilly, 60 degrees. That's about the temperature of the water that forms on your condenser in your air conditioning units. This causes some vascular injury. This is not the same as frostbite. It's not cold enough. And initially, one sees vasoconstriction, so the feet turn white, and then vasodilatation, compensatory, overdilation of the blood vessels to try and save the tissue. So it becomes hyperemic. There's pain involved here. Remember, ask, burning, stinging, itching, pain. The overwhelming thing with this is pain, and that's what it looks like. Trench foot, dry, careful rewarming slow rewarming, and infection monitoring for an area that suddenly gets redder and tender than everything else, and pain control. It's interesting, for trench foot, other than opioids, amitriptyline seems to offer rather unique relief of pain associated with this immersion foot or trench foot syndrome. Miliaria, one can get if you're hot and humid, of course, irritant contact, I've mentioned, chemical burns. You see a picture there of a chemical burn because chemicals are released from manufacturing plants and so forth. The other thing that can be buried under the water are electrical lines. 
and if you touch an electrical line, you might die, of course, or you might get an electrical burn. The thing I want to remind you about electrical burns is they're like a gun wound, a gunshot wound. There's an entrance and there's an exit, and the exit is usually directly opposite the entrance. So you see this guy's got electrical burns on his palm. He probably has similar, if less severe, burns on the dorsum of his hand. So if it appears on one side of the leg, it's going to be on the other side of the leg. Entrance, exit. Entrance, exit. Electrical burns are really difficult to care for. They have to demarcate. And then this is one of those where debridement is appropriate to get down to normal skin, debridement, watching for infection, culturing, treating as appropriate for infection, and ultimately restoring form and function by some sort of graft, but that's delayed. You never immediately want to try and repair an electrical burn. It needs to demarcate, and you need to get it to stop spreading. Then you debride it, make sure it's healthy, and then it can be fixed. Bites. I already mentioned domestic animals are panicked in a disaster, even a water disaster. So in the first two to three days, animals are likely to bite, even they are otherwise docile domestic pets. Insect bites and stings, again, if you look at that Hurricane Hugo, which was a few years ago, 20% of the one emergency department of the people who came in, it was for insect bites and stings. So let's talk just a little bit about fire ants. Fire ants are primarily found in Pacific Northwest, New England, the coastal parts along the Gulf of Mexico, California, or Alaska. And survey says, yes, 82% of you are right. The orange area on this map is the predominant domain of fire ants. There used to be two separate species. They are now intermingled, so you don't, there's no two separate species. Fire ants don't bite. They sting. They grab a hold with their mandible. They rotate on their neck, inserting their stinger. So you often will see an arc or a half circle or even almost a complete circle of lesions. There's a wheel, then it becomes uh, a demodus, looks like a papule, and then turns into a pustule. The end lesion of a fire ant sting is a pustule. About 16% of patients who have encountered these stings will have some sort of systemic reaction. Luckily, it's about a percent, more or less, that actually develop anaphylaxis. But they can have things like chills, they can have arthralgias, they can have other systemic symptoms. Usually they're not too severe. The treatment is ice, topical steroids, and don't scratch. If you scratch, you implant bacteria, and that makes things even worse. Now, here's why I'm talking about fire ants during flooding events, because what they do they band together, they grab hold of each other, and they make a floating island full of fire ants where the eggs and the queen are on the top, 
and all the worker ants, some of whom are sacrificing their lives, they'll drown, are forming what's called a flood flotilla. These are examples. It looks like dirt, but it's not. That's one mass of fire ants all holding together like this, assembling themselves into a waterproof raft, saving the queen and the eggs to start a new colony. Why is that important? Because some people think this is dirt, this is mud. And what can happen, there's another big fire ant flotilla, what can happen, that woman was walking in flood water, she tripped and fell into a big fire ant flotilla. Look at what happened. These are aggressive insects. They sting. They're very territorial. So if you fall into a flotilla filled with fire ants, you're going to get stung. The other one, the guy's foot, he just thought this was mud. So he kicked it out of the way and soon found out he was full of fire ants. So remember that they formed these flotillas during floodwaters in the areas where fire ants are common. Do remember in that map that while the orange was the domain now, that domain is spreading westward. New, New Mexico, Arizona, Southern California, even up into the southern portion of some of the Rocky Mountain states. So fire ants have spread. They started in Mississippi, and now they're spreading even further as they're learning to adapt to somewhat less humid and somewhat colder environments. Now, I think you've heard a lot about this, so I'll do very briefly my take on cold injuries. If you're exposed to cold that's above freezing temperature, you can, in short duration, you can develop chillblains, or if you're exposed to at, near, or just below freezing, you can develop frostbite. Look at this guy, a snowboarder trapped under the snow with an avalanche. So snow disasters can be blizzard, can be an avalanche where you're exposed unexpectedly to large amounts of snow, which is cold. But even in the wintertime, even during normal life, this is really a mistake. Look at her. Her hands, no gloves. Her, she's knee-deep in snow. I don't know how far she had to walk, but it looks like she walked from that building behind her. So that's prolonged exposure to cold and wet. And her face, totally exposed. If you combine wind and cold, then it really gets bad. Look at this guy's a postal postman. Part of his hands exposed, his feet are under the snow, and his face is exposed. Even more unfortunate. Oh, little Johnny, go out and play. Come on back in in a couple of hours. Windy, cold, exposed hands, exposed face. And this guy who's trying to drag a car by himself? I mean, really? Your hand's out there. It's going to be out there. I don't know how fast you could drag a car. It would take me quite a while. His hands are going to be exposed. So he's just asking for it. So even under normal exposure conditions, you need to protect yourself. So chillblains initially is, is pallor, and then it becomes hyperemic, 
generally without blisters, although it can blister, and then ultimately ends up in these red-purple macules, rewarming at room temperature is just fine. And those are examples of chillblains. Chillblains don't exist in Houston. We don't see cold. But our patients go to ski. Our patients go to high mountain elevations that you're just hearing about. Our patients may visit their friends' relatives in areas that are cold. So everybody needs to know a little something about these disaster situations. What's the best way to manage frostbite? Slow rewarming, rapid rewarming, immersion in cold water, immediate amputation, or oral chicken soup. Of course, I believe in E. It's always the best answer. And survey says, oh, it's rapid rewarming. It's called the Alaska method. Lord knows if anybody sees enough frostbite, it's in Alaska. And they've, they've tried everything, and they've determined that rapid rewarming with water at 100 to 110 is the least likely to exacerbate already existing tissue damage. And if it's frostbite, there usually are blisters. And then ultimately, you can have gangrene and eschar formation. Anything that's non-viable has to be removed because non-viable tissue is just one big Petri dish waiting to grow bacteria who then were waiting to go into the bloodstream. So early frostbite with blistering, later frostbite with eschar formation and deep tissue damage, I wish I had a drum. We do a drum roll now. Here's the ultimate in frostbite, removal of tissue, spontaneous loss of the digit. So, you know, we really don't want it to get to that point, but sometimes if it's far gone, it's far gone. But the patient who comes in with serious cold injury, it's probably better to do rapid rewarming. So now you know what to look for in a flood. You know what to look for in a cold environment. You know what to look for if someone's just been in water a lot, the immersion foot or trench foot syndrome. You know what to do. You know some unusual bacteria that can be involved, particularly in flooding situations. Some salt water, some fresh water, all fairly deadly. If a flood is coming, God's sake, take a couple hundred milligrams of doxycycline the day before the big downpour. When our big flood Harvey hit, I took doxycycline because I was, knew I was going to be out in the flood water because I would be called in to work. So thank you very much for your kind attention. How many cases would you say you treated from the hurricane? A lot, a lot. So as I said, part of my time I spend at the VA, we reopened fairly promptly, sooner than most other institutions after the hurricane, and we had a steady stream. Not everybody, of course, they came in for their regular stuff, but we had a steady stream of things related to the hurricane, mostly related to floodwaters or traumatic injuries. Steady stream for weeks thereafter. 
How about mosquito disease with the floodwaters? Well, again, that's going to be delayed because the floodwaters, anytime you have flood, it's going to accumulate in low-lying areas. If people have pails out or other things that hold water, and Lord knows we have plenty of mosquitoes. So right after the flood, at least our county did a very vigorous mosquito abatement program because mosquitoes in our area carry things like West Nile virus, et cetera, et cetera. Didn't see much of it because I think the county is so attuned to it. In other areas, depending on what mosquito-borne illnesses are prevalent, there could be a problem, especially if it's an area where mosquito abatement is natural. We do it all the time. In fact, there are certain times that they usually do it at night. You can't go out because the fog is so thick of mosquito-killing chemicals. I don't think it'll kill us, but it doesn't smell very good. So, okay, thank you very much. Safe travels. This has been a presentation of Dermcast.tv, the official online media resource for the Society of Dermatology PAs.